0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. Well, Good morning, everybody. We have a lot to cover this morning, so I'm going to get right into it. If you're new with us, we are in a series looking at the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. And I just want to remind you again why we're doing that. So if you're on your notes together with me this morning, I know you're still settling down. I'll try to slow down just a sec. But we are spending time in this series. We're doing this series because we're spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. And so if you haven't already, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Exodus. That's right, not Mark, Exodus chapter 33. If you don't have a Bible, we have some available in the seat underneath you there. would love for you to grab one of those. Take that home. We want to give that to you as a gift. You can find Exodus 33 on page 72. And if you're still getting used to your own Bible, it's right in the beginning, right next to Genesis. You'll find Exodus The reason I want you to turn here is because we won't be able to understand the passage in Mark we're looking at today without a little background and history information. Anybody else love history? I love history. Let's do some history together. Just a little context of what we're about to read. Uh, The people of Israel, God had just appeared to Moses, given him the Ten Commandments from the hill. Moses comes down from the mountain, and what does he find? the people worshiping an idol. They had built a golden calf and they're worshiping. And God's like, I'm done with these people. I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, Lord, have mercy on them. And God relents. And at that point, I think Moses is probably asking a question, like, who is this God? (laughs) Like, who is this God? And so he asks the boldest question in the Bible, in my opinion. He asks God to show him his glory. And God agrees to this question. Request, And that's where we pick it up in Exodus 33, 19. You can see it on the screen if you don't have your Bible open. Here's what it says. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, I just want us to notice Two things for where we're headed today. The first thing is where it said that God will pass by Moses. I want you to remember that. And I also want you to remember that when we talk about names in the Bible, like God says, I will tell you my name, that's more than just a label. It is a huge deal in the Old Testament and New Testament because it's a part of your core identity. So we pick up the rest of this story starting in verse 20 through 23. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then Yahweh said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory, notice, passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now listen, those are some tricky verses here, right? When we think about God having a hand and a back, that's not really, God is spirit, that's what we know, and so that's not necessarily what the Hebrew is trying to communicate here. Literally, the word back can be translated as the place I just was. So I'm going to pass by, and then you can look at the place that I just was, or that that's the closest you can get to me, Moses. Moses. Now skip down, if you still got your Bible, to chapter 34, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord, I am, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, third time we've seen that proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and on and on and on. He goes describing who he is. How many of you remember that those two verses from a year and a half ago when we did this series called Who Is This God, right? It is the most quoted passage in the entire Bible, and it is the heart of all Christian theology. In those verses, God reveals who he is. He reveals his name. And what he's like here, it's his self-disclosure saying, I'm Yahweh. I am who I am. I'm the creator God. I'm the sustaining God. I am preexistent God. And that means I am compassionate and gracious and full of justice and love and mercy. But here's all I want you to know for today. Notice how God revealed himself. He passed by. He passed by, not once, not twice, but three times he passed by Moses, meaning he revealed himself or at least what he could reveal to Moses. And then he declares his name, I am. Now, one more quick background text, you okay? You guys with me still? Job, turn to Job or job as some people like to call it. Chapter nine, you're talking about uh, right before the Psalms, kind of maybe a third through your Bible on page 407 of those black Bibles. It's just cool to start connecting the Bible together. And I'm trying to show us this before we get into our passage today. So Job chapter nine, starting in verse four, Job is describing who God is. He says about God, his wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it, and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars terrible. He speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. We're headed into that season right now, aren't we? (laughs) He sends off the light of the stars. Now, I'm pointing this out for this next verse. Verse 8 of Job says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. If you're a Bible nerd like me, that is some cool stuff. Treads on the waves of the sea can literally be translated as walks on water. And believe it or not, this is something said about God multiple times in the Old Testament. One of the things that God does is that God walks on water. Of course, I'm starting to give some things away, but if you're following on your notes here in the Old Testament, only God can walk on water. You can read about another example in Psalm 77 I have on your notes. Now we're ready to turn to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. And again, if you're using that black Bible, that's on page 818. And just to comment on where we are in Mark's gospel, we're really still in this section where the disciples ask this powerful question after Jesus calms the storm on the sea. They ask, who is this man? And we've really been discovering the last entire series of this fall who Jesus really is. And last week we left off with Jesus revealing that he is the God of the impossible. He can take impossible situations and make them possible. He fed over 10,000 people with a bag lunch of bread and fish. And really, this story picks up. It's the same part of the same story in our passage this morning. So let's look at verse 45 together. It says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, pause here. If you got your own Bible, I want you to circle that word made. Jesus made, literally can be translated as forced, his disciples against their will to go down to the boat and get into the sea, as in Peter, I don't care what you think, get into the boat and go ahead of me. I want you to notice if you're falling on your notes, Jesus forces his disciples to go ahead of him to the sea. Now, you may be wondering, why would Jesus be doing this? Well, John's gospel of this account tells us exactly why. After doing this incredible thing of feeding over 10,000 people, they're ready to crown him king. They like a God who can provide everything they need. And this would have included the disciples as well, right? This is what they signed up for, in fact. When Jesus called them, They, they thought he was calling him, to become the king of Israel, to overthrow the Roman power that had held Israel back from being their own nation and power once again. Like, this is it. This is our chance, Jesus. They're ready to crown you as king. And Jesus forces them away because that's not the way of Jesus This is not the way Jesus will receive his kingdom. Yes, one day he will be crowned as king. Even now he sits at the right hand of God in all power and glory. But to get there, to become king, would take a cross for Jesus. And the disciples simply do not understand that. So he forces them away. Rather than submit to their agenda for his life, Jesus retreats to a mountain to pray. He says, I'll meet you in Bethsaida which literally is where this event of the feeding of the 5,000 was just a small little trip, a little bit to the east. It's where Peter and Andrew and Philip lived. Short boat ride away. Remember that. Verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, I don't know what you picture when you hear straining, Like, is that when you're lifting your 10th rep of a weight bench or whatever? No, the word here is they were tormented. It's the same word that was used of the man who was possessed by demons when Jesus cast out the demons into the pigs. They're being tormented by the sea right now. The situation that they find themselves in is brutal. It's torturous. And remember, why are they there? Jesus forced them into that situation. Now I want you to read the first part of verse 48 through verse 49 out loud with me on your notes there. It says, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. Lots to unpack right here. First thing I want you to notice, and this might hurt, Jesus see them struggle but waits to rescue them. He can see them struggle. Literally, we're told that he waits until the fourth hour of the night, till dawn. They had been out at sea probably for seven to eight hours, rowing, rowing, rowing on what was supposed to be a really short journey, stuck, getting absolutely nowhere. Now, I grew up in California, and I know exactly what that's like. You guys don't here in Illinois, right? You think it's gonna take you 20 minutes to get somewhere on the highways in California? (laughs) Be ready for a two-hour wait in traffic, right? But finally, enough is enough. Jesus sets out on the lake, but then let's just be honest. This text says one of the most confusing things in the Bible. Jesus is about to pass them by. Now, when I used to read this, I'm sure most of you are like this. You probably thought, what is going on here? Is Jesus about to diss the disciples? Like, see you guys, diss is a word that Gen Xers used in the 90s in case you're lost. (laughs) But let me just ask you, does that line up with the Jesus we know? That's not the Jesus I know. Something else has gotta be going on here, right? And we know from what we did in the beginning, there is something else going on here. For it to say that Jesus passed by them, was gonna pass by them, should spark something for us. If you're an astute reader of the Bible, so should the fact that Jesus is walking on water. So if you're following on your notes, Jesus walks where only God can walk, revealing his identity. Jesus walking on the water towards his disciples, about to pass them by, is a revelation of the divine glory that Jesus shares with the Father. This is an epiphany, a divine epiphany, answering the question they asked several chapters ago, who is this man? I'll show you who I am. Many people have complained about the gospel of Mark, about it's too simple, it's too blunt. Mark never actually comes out and says, Jesus is God. Now read John's gospel on the other hand, and he's just like saying it all the time. Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. Mark never says that, but I love Mark. He's just a brilliant writer. What Mark likes to do is show us that Jesus is God. It's like a great movie at the end. You remember movies that have a twist at the end and you're just like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. Think about Empire Strikes Back. I know it's become a cultural like joke at this point, but the first time you saw Empire Strikes Back and Darth Vader looks at Luke and says, I'm your father. You're just like, oh, this is what Mark is doing. Oh, he's about to pass him by. He's walking on water. Just Connections are starting to flow here. He's showing Jesus' identity. Surely the disciples get it. Eh, they think he's a ghost. Now the word for ghost is not what we think. It's not like a disembodied spirit of a human being who's died. It's the Greek word phantasma. Probably know where we get some words from that, right? But it literally means like, uh, well, Hebrews is the only other time it's used. And it's the visual manifestation of God's supernatural presence. If you've ever read Exodus 19, for example, when God appears on Mount Sinai before the people, like there's all this fire and smoke and thunder, that's a phantasma. God's presence being made known to his people in power. And so that explains their response, right? Look at the rest of verse, the first part of verse 50. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. They had every good reason to be terrified First of all, remember that in ancient Israel, the sea was considered to be the place of chaos and evil. And so listen, if you and I are sitting in that boat and we see this phantasma walking towards us, I'm probably thinking this is some sort of sea demon coming to get us. That's probably what they're thinking. They're scared to death. But now read the rest of verse 50 out loud with me there on your notes. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. That's the heart of this story, the heart of this text. And the key to understanding it is that middle phrase, it is I. In Greek, it's the words ego ami, which are the exact same words that the Lord uses when he passes by Moses and reveals his name to him. It is I, I am, Yahweh. And so there is no mistaking what Jesus is doing here, right? If you're following, Jesus declares His identity as the great I am." Jesus not only walks, where God can only walk, he also bears God's name. So literally you can translate it as, "Be courageous. I am." Don't be afraid. Sadly, the disciples are still overwhelmed. They still don't get it, and they're not gonna get it until the resurrection. (laughs) Verse 51, then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Remember, if you've been here, that word amazed doesn't always mean something positive. It could be the word astonished, like they're just, what is going on here? And we know that's the fact, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Once again, as soon as as Jesus steps into the boat, the the sea becomes as calm as silk. And here's what's crazy. They don't get it. The feeding of the 5,000, 12 hours earlier probably, they still don't get it. They haven't learned what they're supposed to learn about Jesus yet, but notice it's not because they're stupid. It's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're uneducated. Why don't they get it? What does Mark say? Their hearts are hardened. That is the same phrase used for Pharaoh in Exodus. It's the same phrase that Jesus used about the Pharisees in chapter 2 of Mark when he healed that man on the Sabbath day. Now it's used of the disciples. What does it mean? It means if you're following, the disciples could not or would not believe what Jesus is revealing to them. I'll come back to that. Let's just finish the story. It finishes this way. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Reminder, where are they supposed to be? Bethsaida. Where do they end up? Gennesaret. They end up on the complete opposite side of the shore. Here's a a map of of this here. You see Bethsaida? It's really close to where the feeding of the 5,000 was. And they end up way over on the other side, southwest side of the lake. They're blown off course. You think that's an accident? I don't think so. Verse 54, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. And that's our story. And here's what I wonder if some of you who have been going to church your whole life are thinking right now, oh, I know the application of this one. God is with me in the storms. God is with me in the storms. And you know what? That's certainly gonna be one of the applications. But as I've been looking at this this week, and this might just be for me, I actually don't think that is the main application that we're supposed to take away from this story. Here's what I think it is, if you're following. This is a story about who God is and isn't. Remember how I talked earlier about how I think Mark is just a brilliant writer? He is not blunt and simple, as some people claim. The way Mark writes, he doesn't ever come out and say, Jesus is God. As, as Westerners, we wish he would do that. That's just not the way he was writing. Mark likes to show us who Jesus is by showing us the stuff he does. For example, in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus forgiving someone's sins. Who can do that? Only God. In Mark chapter four, we saw Jesus calming the winds. Who has control over creation? Only God can do that. And here we see Jesus walking on water, which over and over again in the Old Testament, that is only something that God does. On top of that, Mark inserts this little beautiful phrase. He was about to pass by them. All the red lights on your dashboard should be blinking right now when you read that phrase, like many of my lights are on in my car right now. How many of you always have to fill up your tires this time of year, right? You get the little light. It's like, oh. Like I said earlier, I used to read that for years. Years. And I'd think, what was Jesus doing there? He's like, see you guys. I'll see you in Bethsaida. I'm about to get some falafel. I'll meet you over there. Not what's going on. This is Exodus 33. This is the glory of God being manifested in Jesus. On top of all that, if you still miss it, guys, it is I. Ego go, I I am. So this is a blatant, overt way for Jesus to say he is God. So what's my point? The disciples don't get it. They don't recognize Jesus. They don't recognize God in Jesus. In fact, they think he's a ghost. Why? Here's the big idea for me. If you're following, Jesus is very different from the God they were expecting or wanting I don't know about you, but this happens to me all the time. I don't recognize God in my life at times because he doesn't fit into the stereotype of who I want him to be. One of the mistakes we make, especially in the West, is we start with the supposition, I know what God is like. I know that God is love or this or that or the other. And then... When we're challenged by something, we doubt Jesus if he doesn't fit into the box that I've created for him. I mentioned Job earlier. Have you ever read Job? It's 37 excruciating chapters of people explaining who God is. It's not until chapter 38 where God shows up and says, you fools, you have no idea. You cannot even fathom who I am, let alone describe me and put me in some sort of box that you can then contain. The writers of the New Testament, I love it. They start with the exact opposite presumption that we do as Westerners. They start with the preposition like, we don't know who God is like. We get a glimpse of God in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the prophets, but we only get to see what passes by. But then Jesus comes. And we see God in a greater way than ever before. We get to see God's face. We get to see what God is like. We get to hear God's voice, his tone. And if you're honest with yourself, does Jesus always fit into the box you try to place him into? We import all kinds of stuff into our vision of who God is. This is what the disciples were doing. It's why their heart was hardened. They wanted a different god they thought god was going to be more like this and we all do it but here's the problem we are all wrong to some degree some of you are more wrong than me that was meant to be a joke yes (laughs) but we all have stuff that we think is right about god but all of us have stuff that we think about god that is not right amen why why is that the case Well, here's why. Just like the disciples, I've imported my bias, my culture, my upbringing, my political leaning, what I love and what I hate onto Jesus. And here's how I know if I'm starting to make Jesus into my own image, he starts to look exactly like me. You start to feel real confident that me and my group right here, we know the real Jesus. But one of the things I love about Jesus He is constantly challenging my presuppositions about God, right? If you follow a Jesus right now who agrees with you about everything, you're not following Jesus. If your Jesus is like, yep, I spend money the exact same way you would spend money. I use my time the exact same way you're using your time right now. Yep, I love the people you love and I hate the people that you hate. That's when you know. I might be making Jesus into my own image. You know, why am I saying all this? Because I want you to remember way back in verse 45, what does Jesus do with the disciples? He forces them (laughs) into the storm. And if you're on your notes, this is ironic. Ironically, the disciples were in trouble because they obeyed Jesus. What a lesson for the American church, friends. That's not how God is supposed to work. Imagine what not obeying Jesus might have gotten the disciples for a second. Maybe a warm meal in somebody's home. Maybe a good night's sleep in somebody's bed. It certainly would have lifted their ego to tell all the stories about Jesus and all that they've been able to do through Jesus' power and authority. And that's what I think Jesus is like. But if you're following on your notes, the real Jesus will challenge my assumptions about God. Constantly. If you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment... That is a very important phrase. If you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, he's going to challenge your beliefs and your actions constantly. Jesus is not a warm, fuzzy feeling you get on Sunday mornings going to church. Jesus is not an aura up there in the cosmos that if I do good things, he will bless me with health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus is a real flesh and blood person in history who was crucified resurrected from the dead, and he now rules over all creation at the right hand of the Father. He's not a religious myth, not a fairy tale, not a religious system. He is a person, and we need to know what he's really like if we wanna learn to live his way. And that is why you and I have to regularly be in the gospels. Regularly, consistently. It's why we're spending two and a half years off and on in the gospel of Mark. Like, oh, two and a half years. We got to know Jesus. We got to know the real Jesus. The whole time we're praying, Jesus, show me your glory. Show me who you really are. Challenge my assumptions about what I have made you into and then show me how to follow you. Paul tells us that all of God's fullness dwells in Jesus. So are you letting Jesus frame you and sculpt you into what you think about God? Honestly, What does Jesus think about justice? Is it the same thing the pastor on Twitter just tweeted about? What does Jesus really think about sexual immorality? Is it the same thing that our culture is trying to tell us? What does Jesus think about the sanctity of life? What does Jesus think about Democrats? What does Jesus think about Republicans? I'm making no comment on any of those things, so don't come up to me after. I'm simply asking us to consider, am I sure that Jesus thinks the exact same way that I do about all of these things today? Or is it possible he might challenge you and me about some of our presumptions? This story, in my opinion, is about challenging the disciples' assumptions. Are you willing to let him do the same in your life? If so, here's what it's gonna take. Humility. The opposite of humility is a hardened heart. And that is what the disciples had. But if you're ready to let Jesus into your life, to challenge you, to change you, to reveal the real self, his real self to you, it's gonna lay aside all of those things and say, maybe I actually don't know everything. Secondly, this is a story about us and how we face our storms. I'm not gonna deny that. I am the disciples, so are you, right? Have you ever felt like them in the middle of the storm, in the middle of night, rowing and getting nowhere, ever? Anybody? Like you were forced or made to do something against your will? Maybe forced by God, maybe forced by your boss, maybe forced by your wife or your husband, that's a different sermon. Maybe forced by life circumstances. Have you ever felt that the wind is against you? It's been all year. It's been all decade. You're just getting nowhere. You're rowing and rowing and you're getting nowhere in life. Have you ever felt you're alone? You're alone on the sea and Jesus, he's up there on the mountain enjoying some good R&R time. God is distant from you. You don't feel like God is with you in the job you hate, your marriage or whatever. God is up on the mountain. He's cold. He's aloof. He's distant. He's far away. I've had two moments like that in my life. I've shared about them before, but one of them was in seminary. I literally had no Feeling of God's presence in my life that had never happened to me before. God was distant. Like the psalmist, I cried out regularly, Where are you, Lord? Have you ever had feelings of discouragement? God called you to do something, at least you thought He did, and that calling is not going like you thought it was going to. The wind is against you, you're getting nowhere in life. Have you ever felt scared? Terrified is the word used here in the Bible. Have you ever been like on a boat somewhere, not literally, and you're looking out in the horizon and all you can feel is fear and worry and stress? Have you ever been blown off course in your life? You were on the way to Bethsaida, but you end up in Gennesaret. You had your five-year plan. You thought it was from God. You thought you were making wise decisions and it gets thrown off the boat. If the answer to any of those is yes, and if you are a human being and you are in this room, not an artificial intelligence, the answer is yes. We have all had those experiences. And I wonder if Jesus would say to us right now, keep rowing. I love this story. He waits until dawn to come and rescue them. Just this morning, right? If you, I got up early, spent some time in prayer. It's pitch black outside, but then you start looking out the window and dawn starts to creep up. The light has power over the darkness slowly, but surely, and here's the idea if you're on your notes, when we're in the storm, we need to keep rowing no matter how discouraged we are because dawn is coming. Listen, when I'm in the storm, I want out. I'm to Jesus, get off the mountain and come get me ASAP. Come get me out of this mess. Instead, Jesus says, I'm gonna wait because I wanna teach you something. I wanna teach you something in these storms. And just looking at this text, Jesus teaches the disciples two important things that I hope he might teach us as well. If you're following, the first is that God often reveals his real self in the storm. I mean, let's just be honest here instead of forcing them into the sea, it would have been just as easy for Jesus to grab the disciples and go like, hey guys, there's a retreat center up here on the mountaintop. Come with me. Here's a French press. Here's a blanket. Here's a journal. I'm gonna reveal some things to you about myself. I like when Jesus reveals himself in those situations. Instead, Jesus says, yeah, go out to the sea. Because... He knows that is the only way sometimes they will be able to see God, the real God, the real Jesus. How true is this? We see God in the crisis, in the diagnosis, in the operating room. We see God, maybe not the God we thought he was, but we see God in the painful and hard things of life. That's where we see God. That's where we see God is like, and it will challenge us about what we believe about God. I told you about my time in seminary. God, where are you? What are you doing? And one of the things I had to learn that following Jesus isn't based on feelings or emotions. It's based on putting your head down sometimes and being obedient to him no matter what you might be feeling about it on the inside. It's not what I wanted. But I needed that lesson to learn. And God revealed himself through that. Something happens in storms that can't happen anywhere else. So if you're in a storm right now, can I just encourage you, keep rowing, keep your eyes open. Who knows when dawn might come and who knows what you might learn from this experience that you may not have learned any other way except in the storm. Second thing that God uses storms for is that God often brings us better things out of the storm. Do you believe that? Better than our own plans? What was the plan? We're gonna go to Bethsaida. Instead, where do they end up? Gennesaret. But God used it. I mean, who knows how many people were healed because they ended up there. We're we're told maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people were healed. Who knows how deeply the disciples were impacted by this change of course. And life is like that. How often has your life planned, what it was supposed to happen, what you thought God said has taken a different direction? How often have we all thought, I'm on my way to Bethsaida, baby. Why am I here in Gennesaret? My life's supposed to lead me here. Instead, you've taken me here. But how often has it worked out in the end for good? To the point where you say, I didn't like it but if that lousy thing had never happened to me, then this good thing would never have happened to me. Am I alone in that? Maybe an amen. I'll go back to PTS, my seminary, excuse me. It's called Princeton (laughs) Seminary. I look back and I say, thanks a lot for making me go through that. I'm joking. Like, I, I wish I didn't go through that. But I can look back and say two things that God brought me to a better place. The first thing he showed me is that I needed to have my own faith, not my parents' faith. And my parents' faith, I had a faith, I had a picture of Jesus, who he was. And he was showing me something different about that. And the second thing is I had my own five-year plan. I was getting my PhD. I was going to teach somewhere. And God said, "Mm, I have another plan for you, a better plan for you. Now, to clarify, I'm not saying that means that the cancer... The hardship, the divorce, the car accident, any of that was God's plan or God's will that God made those things happen. I know some people are gonna disagree with me about this right now. I don't believe when we say that God is sovereign, that he makes evil things happen in our lives. He does not make abuse happen in our lives. The only promise we have as followers of Jesus is that he can take those bad things in our life and work them out for good, right? It's, it's not like divorce and murder are like, yep, this is what I want your storm to be. No, 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 no. Our hope is that no matter what happens, no matter what storm we find ourselves in, he'll bring us to Gennesaret. He'll bring good out of it for those who love him. He can bring good out of that divorce, something Jesus says he hates. He can bring good out of unemployment, Out of failure, out of anxiety, out of depression, out of addiction. He can bring good out of dark nights of the soul. The problem is, the challenge is, you've got to let him in the boat at that time and let him be the captain of that boat. He may not always take you where you want to go, but he will always take you where you need to go. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. That's how I want to close this morning. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. That is the invitation Jesus says to all of you followers of His who are in the storm right now. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the first thing He says to you is, Follow me. Then He says, Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Courage, what's courage? Courage is trusting Jesus as the source of your strength. It means leaning into the wind, diving in head first. And I will just say to you, courage is a lost art in our society today. (laughs) Go to a park someday with kids, parents and kids. What do you hear the most at these parks? Be careful, be careful, be careful. I did the same thing, but what if sometimes as parents we said, Go for it. As Christians today, we need to go for it. Wholeheartedly, living out our faith with no fear, no shame, no matter what challenges we face. We gotta have courage to stand up for what is right, courage to face criticism, courage to love our enemies, courage to share the gospel. Did you know that at the end of Revelation, when Jesus is welcoming those into his kingdom and telling people who are not welcome into his kingdom, cowardice, makes the list of those not welcome along with sexual immorality and idolatry. I'm like, whoa, cowardice. Take courage. We know from the book of Acts, the disciples eventually learn courage. Did it keep them from storms? I mean, that's what we think. If I don't show courage, I'm gonna be kept from the storm. <laughs> no, no, no. Did it keep them from storms? They were all killed for their faith, for their courage. But I think if they were here today, they'd say to us, yeah, but he brought us to Gennesaret. And that was awesome. Don't be afraid. This is a command, by the way, the most often given command in the entire Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I read that and I go, yeah, but I can't help it. And there are some things where that's true, right? You can't help but being afraid. It's a feeling, an emotion. Like I am deathly afraid of caves. In high school, we decided it would be a great idea to go spelunking for our senior trip. I got stuck. If you take me to a cave right now and you say, don't be afraid, I say, you can't tell me that. I'm deathly afraid. But let's be honest, there are some things where we can say, I'm not gonna fear that. Because fear sometimes is a choice. It's a conscious decision we make. Sometimes we have fear that keeps us from speaking up for someone in their behalf. You you can choose differently. We have fear about sharing our faith with somebody else. We have fear about not being able to control all of our kids' decisions. We can speak differently, think differently about those things. What's the opposite of faith? or What's the opposite of fear? I gave it away, dang it. (laughs) Let's try it. What's the opposite of fear? Wow, you guys are good. And Hebrews 11 verse one tells us what faith is. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. But here's the key. Like fear, faith is not just something that's gonna happen to you. It's a muscle. It's a muscle that you've got to use. It's a personal decision you've got to make daily to take your eyes off the storm and to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Finally, Why? Because I am. It is I. And there's nobody like me. There's nobody who cares for me like I do. There's nobody who wants to take you to the Gennesaret like I do, even though you think this is where you're supposed to go. I wonder if the thing you're worried about right now that keeps you up at night, that you toss and turn about, I wonder if Jesus would say to you about that situation right here, right now, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. I have a purpose for you. I see you. I know the struggle you're going through. I know it's hard. But I promise you, Gennesaret is so much better. (laughs) Falling on your notes, let me ask you in the storm, if you're in the storm right now, will I take courage and choose faith in the great I am? He is, after all, the God who walks on water. And he's more than enough. He is more than enough. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.